Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com and on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturbedi, co-founder of Biotech 2050 and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is a tech platform that is solving the talent crisis in the life sciences industry to bring new therapies to patients faster. I'm excited to welcome Stuart Peltz, founder and CEO of PTC Therapeutics today. Thanks for joining us today, Stuart. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Wonderful. So Stuart, to start off, we'd love to understand the arc of your career and how you got started in this business. Well, I got a PhD out of University of Wisconsin, postdoc, and then I was a professor at Rutgers Medical School. And there I went through the usual process. I learned pretty quickly how to get grants, which is how you, you know, you ultimately could be pretty successful. And so you get through all of that and you realize, okay, what's next? So I thought about a translational medicine institute, but the dollars required for that would have been at a university difficult to come. So the idea was perhaps, you know, a company could do this. And we've been working on RNA biology and then through the 90s, the RNA biology, the mechanisms have really exploded. And we had a number of things that I thought some ideas really on how we could actually find small molecules, modulate RNA biology to treat diseases. So in 1998, I founded the company. Oh, Stuart, and would love to understand, you know, just a little bit more about the founding story. And while you had a faculty position, how you started to conceptualize PTC in the early days. Yeah. So we had a couple of things. One was At first, we were studying this little-known mechanism of action called nonsense-mediated RNA decay. And it was this observation that a point mutation that puts in a premature termination codon within the protein coding region, and not only did it prevent the production of a protein, but it caused rapid degradation of the RNA. You know, that was an interesting... And so the question is, how does it do that? And so I carried out, you know, a decade's worth of understanding of that mechanism. It turns out there's a surveillance pathway that can discriminate between a normal and premature termination codon. And the genetics taught us that there is genes that can actually discriminate between those two. And if you knock them out, you can read through a nonsense mutation, make a full-length protein. So I thought to myself, oh, I wonder if a small molecule where you could trick the cellular machine to allow read-through of a nonsense mutation, make a full-length protein, and then treat a disease. And then the big idea is, was there was, I don't know, 2,500 different genetic disorders at the time that we knew of where 10 to 20% of diseases were due to a nonsense mutation. Could you use the same small molecule to treat all these different diseases? That was sort of the thought process there. And then it was, okay, we also had been studying other aspects of RNA biology to modulate gene expression. Can we set up assays to either increase or decrease gene expression? you know, to treat diseases. That was the founding ideas. And that's all we had. And if you think about it, you know, they were just thoughts. And so actually I had a partner, Alan Jacobson, and then we worked through and I we met Dave Goodell, who was at Tolaric at the time. He was one of the first pioneers in biotech at Genentech. So he liked the idea. And then he brought in, you know, some of the first founders of Genentech, the first CEO. And so they gave us the initial dollars to start going. So we had pretty good godfathers to get us going. But it was interesting, maybe in 1998, it wasn't easy 
it was tech at the time. So I got a million and a half dollars running it out of the lab. This was my first time going around the world trying to raise money. And everyone wanted a dot-com over a uh, biotech. But, you know, if you stuck with it long enough, times changed. And by 2000, biotech became more interesting to people. And we raised our first $15 million in venture funding. And then we built the company from there. And I'm sure the funding environment 20 plus years ago was quite different than it is now. And it seems like you had a great roster of folks around you in the early days. As you look back to you know, the early days and given your academic background, what were some of the areas where you relied heavily on external folks to help bridge the gap of you know, starting a company to running a company? Yeah, so the science I, I knew I wasn't going to have any issues with, but I knew we needed both chemistry, biology, pharmacology initially. So once we got the first $15 million, we had already identified a building near the campus, about 20,000 square feet. I thought we wouldn't even use all of that at the time. Now that we have five buildings or six buildings in that one spot and then many, many others. But it was interesting. So we knew we had when we got the building, we you know set it up for chemistry, biology, and pharmacology. The first hire was my head of chemistry because I knew that was going to be the critical aspect of it. It was Neil Olmsted, who's still here today with us. He was a strong chemist. It's interesting. I also, the person who did this was a headhunter, Claudia Herowat, who was really quite brilliant, who wasn't a scientist, but understood what you needed to help build a company. So she helped me quite a bit. And she liked it so much that she actually ultimately came on board to help build the company, help build out HR, IT, you know, all those things. The one thing I am is a, a pretty good learner. I like just for the sake of learning. I'll learn everything, right? So every time I brought someone else in, like for finance, whatever we needed to do, I sit with that person till I understood everything. And then clinical, and then so we built out research initially, hired the pharmacologist, built out teams, then built out development when we got molecules. So I would be comfortable, you know, it's probably one of the reasons I'm here today, 25 years later or so, is that because I was willing to learn all aspects of the company, right? You can imagine if you had to come in now and run a, you know, 1300 person company with both commercialization, development and discovery, that would not be an easy thing to do. But I got to build every aspect with it. And I took the time to learn every aspect of it. That was, you know, exciting, right? I, I mean, I found every aspect of that pretty exciting to do. Yeah. And I imagine in the early days, you know, you're focusing a lot on innovation on the R&D side, but now you have commercial products. Talk to us a little bit about that ebb and flow between innovation and, and generating revenue and kind of your own mental model and approach at PTC about those dynamics. Yeah. You know, in some ways, I understood even at when I was at the university that, you know, funds let you do what you want, right? And that's true, right? Whether The more grants you have, the more you can do whatever you want. And that's also true in biotech. You need the funds to be able to do that. So I focused on making sure that we always had enough money. It's very interesting. If you went back to look at our business plan of 1998, it's pretty similar to the business plan of today. We sort of stuck to the notion of discover, develop, and commercialize products of high amount medical need and rare disorders. It's pretty simple vision. It's just hard to execute, right? And so I focused early on on bringing in the best people I can bring in, 
What they always said at the university, I was good at collecting smart people and using them. I did that at the company too, because at the end of the day, I always tell people, we bring you because you're smart. We want to hear what you have to say. It doesn't matter who's at the table. You know, when we're arguing over ideas, everyone's opinion counts. And then we move on, make decisions, go to the next thing. That culturally worked for us. That worked actually quite well. And then I also knew we needed to raise funds. And I thought that venture money, what I watched is that it comes and goes. And where you get into trouble is when you need it and it's not the right time to get it. So you wanted multiple avenues to get funding. And so I thought to myself, okay, I was good at getting grants. I bet you I can get grants in here. And we started out and indeed you could, you get NIH grants, you get FDA grants, but I also figured out how to go to the Pentagon and figure out what monies they have, NIH. And then we started getting large grants, you know, $10 million, $20 million grants that allow you to move programs forward, right? And that's money that no one could tell you. If you have those kind of funds, they can't tell you, you shouldn't do this. I want you to only do this. So it allows you to get multiple other programs ongoing, right? And early on, RNA biology we could use it in many different ways, in rare disorders, oncology. We tried infectious disease, inflammation, because we figured out ways where we could test things. So we built up so we could do high throughput screening, and we could do it in a, a fast and relatively quick way. And then business development is something we brought in as another mode, because we built new technology that no one else had before, and companies tend to want to get that. And so we did probably three, $400 million of business development. Those are early stage that don't affect the programs, what you're going, but it allows you, and the way we always did these, they would be upfront payments plus FTEs and milestones, right? And they would be on targets that they would want. So they didn't affect our targets that we want. And we just brought in additional capital to be able to use to fund our projects with the upfront, use the FTEs, FTE payments to pay for their own. And then I learned over time that often big pharma and other companies, they change so quickly that often the stuff you're doing with them, the people who who wanted it are no longer in that spot and you get it back anyways. And you help build strength by doing things with other companies. You learn what their technologies are and what best practices there. And you're moving forward your own programs. We raise money as we needed it. So we always were in front So I always tried to make sure that we raised money, that we always had money in the bank to be able Mm -hmm. to move forward. And then we always had these additional areas to be able to use these pots of money to do other programs as well. Got it. I'm curious to hear your perspective on how the business development landscape has changed in biotech over the last 10 to 20 years and, and where you think it's headed. For us, we're always looking for things that we can bring in, right? Those are things that will phase two, phase three, or commercial products, because we have a global footprint where we could sell what others may not want to have the ability to commercialize, right? So that's how we do it. My view of business development was really to help bring funding in it and bring other collaborations as possible. The company now has transitioned where my view is that people pay us to take risk. And if we take the risk and it works, I want all the value from that. So we don't do much business development from the point of view of trying to use our technologies to collaborate with others. Because, you know, it's funny, it's like the splicing platform is you've been usually successful. 
no one ever thought in 2005 when we started this that you'd be able to identify small molecules that selectively and specifically modulate splicing, right? We showed you that you could. And we're doing it now over and over. We could do it in multiple times. And people have offered huge amounts of money to be able to say, can we do it? But in my perspective is, let's say HD or something else. I have this program. So I could get a lot of money, but then I've given that up. And the goal of the company now is to have their own products to move them forward. So I don't use it as for risk sharing as much anymore. So it'd have to be for something really unique and special. Because I think ultimately, if we create the value, we want the revenues. Yeah. Yeah. Let's say for first-time entrepreneurs that are running biotechs and are in the early days, any advice that you could provide for you know early-stage, high-growth biotechs around business development and partnerships? Yeah. I think you have to understand what you want to be ultimately, right? And it's hard to go from an idea to a product could be a decade or two, right? So it means you're going to suffer the slings and arrows of all of that to get to that point, right? So you have to know what's your plan. Because if your plan is to have a product, taking your most advanced product and partnering it, sure, it could bring in money. And people always tell you it validates your technology, but you've now just given away your most valuable asset that you now have to go back and redo with the money that you got just brought in. So you sort of have to think, what do you ultimately want to be? And I think you have to think more than just business development. You need to make sure that the cadre of investors that you have, that they understand what you're going to try and do and believe in that, right? Because if you're going to do long-term, they need to come back to the well multiple times, right? We had A, B, C, D, E, F, F1, F2, F3, G8. But if your notion is, I don't really want to take all that risk, and therefore, I want to sort of take it up to a point and then off-ramp the risk. But to me, that's more selling it because I don't think simply, if you look, the only company that I know that's done really well on that is like Ionis, right? They've been around a long time and they've had a business model of business development and it's worked for them. But most people have a hard time making that model work for them, right? So sooner or later, I believe that you have to get a product that you take a risk on that you bring it out yourself. If you want to transition from discovery to development to commercialization and then bring in revenues that then let you fill. And to me, that was the key. And that's what we did. Because if you think about it, Translino, we got approved outside the US first in 2014. That started bringing in substantial revenues that let us then buy a second drug in Flaza for Duchenne kids. So we had two now for Duchenne kids and one in outside the U.S., one for the U.S., that let us build a whole commercial team from that. So now we had a commercial engine that could sell rare disorders anywhere in the world. And then from there, we brought in two other products for my owners that let us sell in Latin America because we were good at selling in Latin America. So we can create revenues from there. So last year, 2021, with all the products we had, and then if RISD hit, right, was the second product that we made that is incredibly right, valuable product for SMA, an oral molecule. Yeah. So with all of those products, we had $539 million of revenue. We expect 700 to $750 million this year. Now we have this revenue base that you can continue to build and grow the company so that you can say, okay, what's my vision now? And you came from a company that 
you get milestones, raise money. So you don't need to raise money. You have revenues that let you use those revenues to add and to innovate. And then what we did is we decided that, look, we're going to try and get a product every two to three years, which means we need to grow a pipeline that at steady state has 30 to 40 programs in it. It's rare nowadays for biotech to even think about commercialization. I'm curious what impact you think partnering or perhaps being acquired by big pharma has when you don't have to think about commercialization with some of these high growth venture-backed biotechs and what your hopes are for some of these late stage assets that are around in biotech now. What works for us is the way we think about two things is business development and our pipeline. So we've grown, we'll have end of this year, 230 scientists. We probably have 150 chemists outside that we use. And so we're building a strong pipeline, but we've also done a number of purchases, right? We have a gene therapy program that we purchased. We bought a company that does oxidative stress and has a platform that we love. We bought a company that has a better PKU drug and that we've all brought in. So we look for things like that. Like, look, we're still not big enough to compete with big pharma or big biotech. So I tend to look for things that, in a way, a, a broken balance sheet where there's really good science, but their investors were not the normal investors who know that they have to keep re-upping. And those are hard to find, obviously. But we've spent some time doing that, and that's worked for us and added. So this year, we'll have five registration studies that are ongoing. You know, upon success, will create value for us. So. Yeah. You know, I think what we've done over the years is build a discovery engine, built a development engine, built a commercial engine, and then made opportunities to bring some things in and then work like hell to build our own pipeline from our own research. Like we really built a company that's 24 years now going on 25 soon. Yeah. And as you've built this company and you've gone from tens to hundreds to now thousands of employees, how has your hiring philosophy changed in terms of the collective phenotype of the team and what you look for and then subsequently management of that team? I mean, we started in with Duchenne muscular dystrophy as our first treatment and that we had to learn everything, you know. But the thing about rare disorders is you're very close to the patients and their families. You get to know the key opinion leaders. And so you understand the plight of the family, the plight of the patient. And, you know, every meeting you go to, they're there. So you can imagine that it transitions the company from not just being a science company, but to realize that what you do really matters. You know, it's interesting, even going through the process of making a drug and them watching you, in, in a way, it manufactures hope for these people. And that's incredibly powerful. And not so much that they expect everything to work, but the mere fact that people are interested enough to try and change their lives is very powerful. So that creates a very interesting culture, right? In a way, I say we're more of a cause than a company. And my view of that is good because I've always thought, and I believe this is true, and at least for me, it's always been true. I like causes. So I want people who come to our company to work for a cause. And so, right, that drives engagement, it drives passion. And so we've used that, and I believe in that, right? I believe in causes. And so we're still, at, to this date, a founder-driven company. So it's somewhat easier to create a mission and a cause. 
But we have now transitioned over to thinking about how is it you keep a culture? I believe there's a couple of things like process and culture. If you have the right processes and the right culture, you know, you'll drive engagement, right? And to me, that matters a lot. What we did is we brought like the top 40 executives at one point and said, what are the behaviors? Because everyone said, oh, as we grow, how are we going to keep the culture? And I always said, you know, it can no longer be me. You guys have to be just as involved as I have to be. And therefore, what is it in the culture that matters, right? And so we came up with behaviors, right? You got to be passionate about purpose. You got to be entrepreneur. How do we stay entrepreneurial? One PTC, like get rid of the silos. You know, everyone only cares about one thing. Trust and inclusion, right? You can't have strong battles without trust, right? Because if people don't trust each other, then they don't, they can't say what's on their mind ever better. So we built these set of behaviors. Be kind was one of them. So we have all these behaviors and I spent a fair amount of time talking about them. And so in other words, it's their job also when they hire to make sure that these people have what we want. And then we built systems like, look, if you're going to grow and you're going to go from a few teams to 50 teams, you can't be everyone coming into the CEO's office anymore and solving every problem, right? It just doesn't work. And anyways, I always thought you needed to give people some room to be adventurous and to innovate for themselves. I mean, we built a system where there's teams, we try and find the best group leaders and project managers and let them, in a sense, be the CEO and COO of every team. So we're looking for the best and the brightest and those people, you know, to run cross-functional teams. So when people say, well, can we maintain entrepreneurism? The answer is yes. Every team is entrepreneurial. But we have oversight. And the oversight is the senior leaders once a month see what's going on. We're religious about objective and key results for the quarter. Everyone argues over them. They get put into a program that everyone could see and they're all aligned. And every month you have them, they're talked over. Teams and sub-teams come together and make sure they work. So there's no missing of them. And then they move on. You do it. There's monthly meetings. You see how you did at the end of the quarter. You refocus. Do this all again. So you're constantly talking. It forces people to conference table, which I think is the most important tool we got, is to talk. And if you yeah. do that, then and everyone keeps on what's important, what isn't. Let's get to the best answers. See if they work. Reconnoiter and fix it. If everyone keeps doing that and keeps talking, no matter where you are, that's the best you could do to get to solutions to where you don't know the answers. And Stuart, what have been some learnings around culture that have surprised you? Perhaps they were non-obvious over the last you know, 22 months during the pandemic. You know, it's interesting. During the pandemic, I was sort of a pandemic watcher for a long time. So I read books on it. So I would say at the end of February, I called up and said, we got a real problem. Let's shut down any flights. And by March 1st or 2nd, we shut down everything. So we were way ahead of everybody else in that sense. But then we said, okay, IT, whatever anybody needs to move ahead, give them what they want. They need chairs, tables that go up and down. So everyone got whatever tools they needed at home. Zoom meetings were set up so that everyone would stay connected. Research and technical operations shut down for a while. And then we said, okay, 
what we did is we rented another 100,000 square feet of lab space, put it out so that people were always far away from each other, worked around the clock so that everyone had different times. So we never shut down research or technical operations for that, you know, manufacturing. We did that like with high speed. And then what I did was every week I did a video blog, which turned out to be the best thing I ever did because everyone watched it. So everyone feels like I'm talking to them directly, which I am. And like, what's going on this week? How do I feel this week? How do you feel this week? What are we trying to do in the Zooms? Everyone could purchase beers and have, you know, Friday Zoom. You know, we did all of that. So we kept sort of the culture because at the end of the day, when you think about culture, isn't really in cement, it's in people. It worked tremendously well. Some of our best years were last year and this year in terms of the commercial. We got through more development candidates. Now, there clearly people are hungry to get back together. But, you know, we had more physicians for commercialization. Physicians were at home, too. They were all going to all the stuff that we built. So you had more engagement there. It's funny, meetings started again at 7.30, went to 7.30. So people were rolling out of bed and work. There wasn't anything else much to do. So people really, and we were very good about You had your kids at home, teach them, you know, if you had school during the day, that's great. You can work whenever you wanted. We learned to be quite flexible and that worked for us. And frankly, I was a guy who probably would have told you before the pandemic that you need a home base and that people need to come in and be together. And that matters. Well, turns out it probably does matter, but you could do this pretty well. And so we've taken that on and asked people how often they want to come in. The average is People don't want to come back five days a week. They want to come back one or two days a week. And I'm okay with that. I think people do need to get together on certain big things. Yeah. The trick is to figure out how often to get together. And and you have to figure it out things like, you know, there's no point me going in if no one else knows, right? You got to figure out like, this is the day I'm going to, you have to let people know ahead of time and have meetings on those days set up, lunches, have dinners, whatever you want. So we're working all this out for us for the yeah. next step. Great. And Stuart, to, to wrap up, and this is for the benefit of the you know, many budding entrepreneurs that listen, I'm curious, what's one piece of advice that you would provide your younger self now knowing what you know? It's a good question. I probably would have been good for me knowing now that things take as long as they take. But I don't know if you can actually teach that. I think that comes with experience. I've learned a lot just from doing this and working with lots of people. I mean, the best thing I think we did is I always did hire good people and I let them do what they want and were good at. And to me, that sort of probably kept me to where I'm at here. I always brought in people who I thought were really good, but then I'd learn from them as well. The trick is to share the wealth or share the responsibility. And that worked for me. Great. Well, Stuart, with that salient advice, thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing your your remarkable journey. It was a pleasure. Thank you. It was fun to talk about. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.